What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the C-String Podcast. This is going to be the second episode of the C-String Podcast, and it's going to be the first episode that is going to feature some historical deep dives. Um, so I'm going to be talking about today the history of Kearney, Nebraska. I got ter- told by a certain somebody, that certain somebody knows who they are, that I was pandering to Nebraska in my introduction episode. And you know what I thought? I thought, let's pander even more. Let's get fun. Let's pander even more. So, we're going to do the history of Kearney, Nebraska. I'm going to talk about the early beginnings of Kearney, Nebraska. This is not going to be a history of everything that's ever happened in Kearney, Nebraska. That will get that that would get boring to you guys. Um, I would. That is something I'll be interested. I, I'll, I'll probably I'll probably look some stuff up, but. Uh, I'll just talk about the kind of how it was founded, um, and then a few of the attractions that are actually in Kearney, Nebraska now, and then a couple of really cool dudes that have uh, that are that are famous out of Kearney, Nebraska. Uh, so a little bit, a little bit of variety, a little bit, a little bit of things for everybody. But uh, I'll, I'll say that I'll preface this with a lot of the information that I found was on the the city of Nebraska Kearney's um, website. I just, I just uh, went over there. That's where I did a lot of my research. Did some external... I, I clicked on some external links uh, to get some stuff about a couple of the attractions and a couple of the people uh, later on, which I will discuss when I get there. But let's just go ahead and get started. Uh, today's episode will be about a half hour long, maybe 40 minutes, somewhere in between there. Uh, so let's get it going. So I'll begin with a couple, couple of passages uh, about the early beginnings of Nebraska Kearney. The westward push of the railroad as the Civil War ended gave birth to many Nebraska communities, among them Kearney Junction. The name Kearney Junction was selected for several reasons. The junction stemmed from the fact that the town was where the Burlington and Missouri Railroads made its junction with the tracks of the Union Pacific Railroad. The word Kearney was taken from Fort Kearney. The fort was named after Colonel Stephen Watts Kearney, as you'd expect. Established in 1848, Fort Kearney offered protection to thousands of pioneers, Pony Express riders, and prospectors traveling west on the Oregon Trail. According to an 1849 War Department report, over 30,000 people bound for California, Oregon, and Utah passed through Fort Kearney during an 18-month period following the gold rush of 1849. Originally built near Nebraska City, the fort was later relocated to its present site to increase military strength in central Nebraska. Fort Kearney was the first U.S. Army post on the Oregon Trail and was never attacked. By Indians. So, um, a little bit about that. Um, it, the town name was obviously derived from the fort uh, uh, directly neighboring uh, the town. Um, interesting to note uh, the including the inclusion of the Oregon Trail. Um, I, I I didn't know that that's what that fort was used for. Kind of doubt that it was used for anything else. Like um, it says. It, it protected pioneers um, and Pony Express riders and prospectors traveling west on the Oregon Trail, which it it, pro- it I'm, I'm going to assume it did that. Um, but I think that the Oregon Trail was probably its main purpose for being for a fort being there in the first place. Um, obviously, at that time, uh, we'll say the government was very strict. Uh, on Indian removal, I'll just use that word, uh, strict 
and I'm going to assume that's why the fort was built there uh, in the first place. Um, uh, Observant readers are quick to point out the spelling differences between the fort and the town. The extra E in Carney is not difficult to explain. Uh, They didn't have autocorrect in 1871, and some doofus made a spelling error. Uh, and by the time it was realized, like, it, it, there was, you couldn't change, like, you already sent the text, you can't, you can't, like, you can't delete it and then resend it with the new, like, no. No, you didn't have autocorrect, you messed up, you messed up. And by the time they caught it, they were like, fuck it, we're just gonna f- roll with it. So now there's an extra E in between the N and the Y. Kind of stupid, and, yeah, kind of stupid. Uh, the plat was filed with the county clerk in October of 1871. Settlement, though, began earlier in the summer of 1871, when Reverend and Mrs. Collins entered a homestead claim. The couple lived in a dwelling called Junction House. This house was the place of the first post office, the first school district, the first marriage ceremony, and the first church service. Following construction of Junction House in 1871, Kearney Junction began to grow rapidly. Kearney was incorporated on December 3, 1873. By 1873, a census report showed 245 residents, and reports indicate there were more than 20 buildings. In the 1880s, the community community was riding the crest of a boom, which swelled the population past 10,000 people. Optimistic residents of Kearney sought to have the nation's capital located here, not the states, the entire nations. Yeah, that's very optimistic. Others raised a quarter million dollars to finance a huge cotton mill. The county courthouse was moved from given to Kearney in 1874. So, as you can see here, just after settlement began uh, in in this uh, in this city, it blew up like just immediately after, from the late 1870s to early 1880s. And this is largely in thanks to the post Civil War uh, migration to the West and all that manifest destiny, you know, all that garbage. Uh, people just wanted to go, go, get out there, go west, go, get over there. Um, that's largely that's that's largely what the population boom can can be accredited to. Uh, however, in the late 1880s, Carney's bubble began to burst. The mill closed, real estate values collapsed, and the population just drifted away. In 1890, only 5,634 residents remained in the city. In 1902, the state legislature approved $50,000 to start a college. Kearney was successful in acquiring the college, and in 1904, the cornerstone was laid for what is now the University of Nebraska at Kearney. Classes also began the same year, with 96 students forming the first class. Uh, you can look it up yourself. Um, there's a there's a picture of the first graduating class uh, for University of Nebraska at Kearney. There's, uh, it looks like... I didn't look at it for that long. I would say probably about 20. 20, 30 people, somewhere in there. Not 96. So, <laughs> I don't know, dropout rate for those first four years. Quite high, you know, like a fifth of the, a fifth of the 96 guys, they just left. You know, or I guess a fifth of them were the ones remaining. Four-fifths of them just, they had to drop out. So, not great, but still pretty cool to go and see that picture. Um, in the new century, Carney's growth was steady but less dramatic than before. By 1930, the population was only 8,575. So, uh, as you can see, from like 1870, I think 1873 is what it said, from 200-something, and then from to the early 1880s, got up to 10,000. That's such a huge growth. 
and you know maybe you can understand you know reasonably understand why people wanted a capital to be their state what might have been more reasonable than the nation um but then from 1890 you know after the collapse to 1930 a span of whole 40 years they gained about two to three thousand people as opposed to ten thousand so definitely a less drastic growth rate um but the in 1964 Kearney was linked with I-80, which created a boom in tourist trade, causing construction of motels and restaurants to increase. So I-80, obviously a huge part uh, of the whole world, really, um, getting getting more interconnected and more cities getting popular. But obviously Kearney uh, was in there as well with the whole interstate thing. They got jumped on that train uh, pretty quickly. I guess they jumped in that automobile. They didn't really, you know trains were kind of dying out anyway you know here here's something really cool uh, about the city of Kearney in general it is located halfway between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans when people say Nebraska is the center of the US they are not kidding <laughs> Kearney Nebraska is the center of the center of US the center of the center right in between both oceans really really cool really really cool um, so that's a little bit about the history of Kearney. Some brief facts. Uh, thought that was interesting to share with you guys. Uh, but I will now move on to a few Kearney museums that are currently in Kearney today. Uh, no, I'm not sponsored by Kearney. I'm not shilling these out to you. I just think they're interesting. Don't get mad at me. We'll start with the Great Platte River Road Archway Monument. Or the Archway, as it's just called in Kearney. And actually, if I was sponsored by Carney, they probably wouldn't want me to talk about this. And you'll see why in just a little bit. But uh, some brief facts about it first. It's a monument on I-80. Um, uh, it's on mile marker 272, which is three miles east of the exit, uh, of the Carney exit, which is mile marker 275. Um it opened in July of 2000 and houses a historical experience that tells the story of Nebraska and the Platte River Valley in the development of America. The monument spans more than 300 feet above I-80. Now, here's probably why they wouldn't want me to, to uh, tell you about the history of it. Um, because uh, in 1997, $60 million in bonds were issued and purchased by investors. And on July 16, 2000, the archway opened to the public about a quarter million um quarter million visitors uh in both of the attractions first two years so about half a million total in the first two years but the problem was the they were those numbers were way down than what the projected numbers said and that meant the monument had to reduce expenses and refinance its bond payments reducing the amount owed to 22 million million dollars which was repaid by 2013 now, while a shift in focus on educational group tours briefly presented the monument with a more stable financial footing, attendance subsequently dwindled, counting only 50,000 visitors in 2012. The archway filed for bankruptcy protection on March 7, 2013. Now, there's a lot of bankruptcy information, but the short of it is Thomas Saladino, federal bankruptcy judge, approved a debt plan ordering museum organizers to pay $100,000 as settlement for the more than $20 million it owned to bondholders, creditors, etc., etc. So that's a pretty good deal. Uh, just paying a hundred thousand as settlement for 
20,000 plus it owed to others. Pretty good deal. Um, they got that file through. So that was really cool to see. And I think in 20... Um, I read this somewhere. In 2018, they released a report that in 2017, the previous year, the monument actually had a positive revenue for the first time in its history. Uh, so that's really cool to see after that debt payment getting paid off. They're actually doing something good with it. So that's really cool. Uh, the trail along the Platte River through Nebraska, which came to be known as the Great Platte River Road, has been a thoroughfare for travel across the continent. The Archway Museum details the stories of the pioneers, adventurers, and innovators who have traveled the trail since the mid-1800s and helped to build America. The exhibit starts at Fort Kearney in 1848 and features sections on the Oregon Trail, California Trail, and Mormon Trail that converge at the nearby Fort Kearney before heading west. As visitors progress through the exhibit, the displays of different time periods feature a prairie schooner wagon on the Oregon Trail, a buffalo stampede, the Mormon handcart expedition, a 49ers campsite, the Pony Express, the Transcontinental Telegraph, a stagecoach, the Transcontinental Railroad, the first Transcontinental Highway, the Lincoln Highway, and today's Transcontinental Highway, I-80. The exhibit ends with a replica drive-in and 1950s-style cafe with windows providing views over the interstate. Um, so that's that's just kind of a discography of what is actually inside of the archway. Uh, really cool. I think the most interesting stuff has got to be the Oregon Trail, California Trail, Mormon Trail, and Fort Kearney thing. Um, the fact that those three trails, I don't know much, much about those three trails to begin with, uh, but the fact that I live right next to a fort that converged them all and pushed them and then converged going westwards, uh, I definitely have the resources at my disposal to learn more <laughs> um, about these three trails and Fort Kearney in general. And that's what the archway, uh, I, I guess, is... Um, is uh was made to do uh, to teach people about these things um obviously you know 49er stuff transcontinental stuff as well big uh big topics in the archway museum exhibit um but in general uh very exciting stuff it's been forever since i've been here long long time ago i don't even remember what the inside of it looked like uh, so definitely someplace i will be visiting um definitely someplace i will be visiting here uh here within the next few years um that is the archway, or as it's officially known, the Great Platte River Road Archway Monument. Moving on, we are going to move on to the Museum of Nebraska Art. MONA, for short, which is really cool to have an art building be abbreviated to MONA for obvious reasons. That is really cool. Um, it is the official art museum of the state of Nebraska. Did not know that. I did not know that. I'd seen the building here before. I was like, oh, cool, an art museum. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I don't really, not really my thing. Uh, but it's the official uh, art museum of the whole state, uh, which that in itself probably makes it worth a visit. But there's something, um, there's some more information about it that I'll tell you in just a bit that will uh, that really piques my interest. Um, but obviously it's located here in Kearney, and it's actually administratively affiliated with UNK. Um, so that's pretty cool. The art collection was first created in, in 1976, but initially lacked a permanent home. In 1985, a state-appointed commission settled on a historic post office building in Kearney, which was built in 1911 but was badly outmoded and slated for demolition. The neoclassical architecture, marble interiors, and spacious well-lit rooms attracted the attention of museum officials, who purchased the disused building and refitted it. In 1986, Mona opened there in its new permanent location. 
So a little bit about the building itself. Um, it was it was a post office in 1911. Uh, so what, 70 years ago? Uh, or 70 years before 1985, not 70 years ago. Uh, but 70 years before 1985, which is when the state appointed a commission settled on the actual building itself. So uh, really cool there. And then they settled into it actually just one year later. Uh, the, the collection itself covers over 175 years of art and art history. Many historic artists with Nebraska connections have their work in the permanent collection, such as Alice Eliza, Robert Henry, John Philip Falter, and Frank Reinhardt. Mona is also home to works by more modern artists like Thomas Hart Benton, Wright Morris, and Leonard Dyson, as well as living artists such as Jane Golding Marie. Now, if you're any, anything like me, you don't know who those people are. No offense to those people. Um, I just don't know. I just, I'm just i just not an art person. I don't know a lot about art. I don't know a lot about the history of art. Um, might be some, you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'll be interested in that. Maybe not. Um, but you know what? If I visited this place, maybe some of these names would stand out to me. You know, art is something that really grabs, grabs your, grabs your emotions, grabs your feelings, grabs your attention, uh, commands your interests, speaks to your soul, things like that. And kind of like, I choose, I choose to use music as that outlet rather than art. But, you know, I, that I could, I could find myself getting interest, interested in art for the same reasons I'm interested in this, in the music that I'm in, interested to. Um, but the part that really piques my interest is that the collection includes work by artist explorers who documented early Native American life and natural history in Nebraska. My favorite history um, when it comes to the United States is not the European colonization and civilization uh, of, of the Americas. It's the Native Americans of, of what was, what became America. Um, and when I get, when, when I find that there's an opportunity to learn about the Native American life about, um, the U.S. and this is even better because it's about Nebraska, uh, I can't help myself but get interested and learn more, um, it's something I feel like I don't want it to become lost on people, these Native Americans and what they did and how they lived, et cetera, et cetera. I, I feel like this is something that's come, kind of becoming lost uh, as time goes on. Um, but but I want to, I want to, so I want to make it, you know, I want to make it my, my goal to learn as much as I can about them and really fill myself with this not with the knowledge of what they were like that way at least i know i'm doing my part you know i'm not forgetting who these people were um but uh, you know it also mentions they documented natural history in nebraska so if that's your sort of thing you know there you go um these people included george catlin john james Audubon, and carl bodmer uh, exhibitions of these artists are often supplemented with art and historical artifacts from other nebraska museums including the stir museum of prairie jo uh, the jocelyn art museum and the university of nebraska state museum so there you go a little bit about mona um uh i think i wouldn't have i wouldn't i wouldn't visit this museum i don't think unless i i, I only visit it because of the uh, documents of of native american life and natural history in nebraska you know um Art, art's not really my thing, as I've probably said about 12 times by now, but that really interests me, and you know what? That might get me into the, some of the things I was talking about earlier, some of the names I mentioned earlier, and you know, maybe their art catches my eye. Maybe this museum gets me into art. Who knows? Maybe it gets you into art. Um, 
But I, I, I was thinking actually while, um, while writing a script for this that I could probably um, visit these places um, and then write down about what I learned, uh, my experiences, and then do another episode where I revisit these three, um, these three uh, museums and tell you about my, what happened there, what I learned, uh, all, that, all that sort of stuff. Um, but speaking of the third, the third uh, museum, it's a house. It's more of a mansion, actually. Definitely more of a mansion. The George W. Frank House. Go ahead and uh, guess what the W stands for in that name. I'll tell you here in a, in a bit. But first, a little bit about the, the uh, mansion. It was located in, or it is located in Kearney, Nebraska, and was built in 1889 by George W. Frank. Since 1971, the property has been owned by Kearney State College, UNK. The university now operates the home, the, George, the G. W. Frank Museum of History and Culture. In 1973, the house was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. So that's just a little bit about it. Now, this is for you kind of, um, oh, it's for, your, it's for your architecture junkies out here. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the place uh, more in depth and then kind of what it looks like and some cool features of it as well. So first, uh, it, the Frank House is located in Kearney at 2010 University Drive on the west end of University of Nebraska County campus. So it's actually on the campus. Um, it's it's west of the campus, but east of the medical center. Uh, on, it's just right next to University Drive. Um, if you live in Kearney, you know where that is. If you don't live in Kearney, don't listen to me. The house was completed in 1889 at a cost of about $40,000. It was one of the first houses west of the Missouri River to be wired for electricity during the construction of the house. The house is of Richardsonian Romanesque design, with Colorado red sandstone from Wyoming. The exterior stone walls are 18 inches thick, while the interior supporting walls are 14 inches thick and made of brick. The house has 14,000 square feet of living space, with three floors and a basement. The Frank house originally had 10 fireplaces, seven of which remain. The largest of the fireplaces is located in the drawing room. The extensive interior woodwork is English golden oak, done by a local carpenter named John Peter Lindbeck certified master carver. Many of his wood carving designs are repeated elsewhere throughout the interior and exterior of the home, as these were the architect's only stipulations on what he was to carve. So there you go. Uh, a little bit about the design itself. Um, all that, you know, three floors and a basement, 14,000 square feet, red sandstone from Wyoming, brick wall, 10 fireplaces, 10 of them, and a master carver, that's all that's just forty thousand dollars, guys. Just forty thousand, no big deal. It's just forty thousand bucks. You have forty thousand dollars. That's all it takes to get all this. By the way, John Peter Lindbeck, a master carver, certified. This is not some nickname he came up with, you know, oh I'm the master. No. He went and got certified. Certified master carver. That guy's not a badass. Nobody is. Master Carver, John Peter Lindbeck. Remember that name. I'll make sure you remember it. John Peter Lindbeck. He's a master, certified master carver. He did some of the wood carving designs uh, throughout the interior and exterior of the home, uh, as I just mentioned. Uh, a little bit more about it. The grand staircase has six newel posts, each of which has its own design. On the second floor landing is the home's stained glass window, measuring five feet wide and nine feet tall. The creator of the window is still unknown in a current research project of the museum. I would love to be on that research team. 
trying to figure out who who made the stained glass window in the uh, in the in the mansion. Uh, again, go go. I couldn't really describe it for you. Um, it's better to just go and look it up yourself. Uh, the George W. Frank House, uh, and look at the, the stained glass window yourself and get a look at it. But again, I want I would like to be on there. It just seemed really cool. Um, not knowing who who did that, you know, you, they, he he's got to have written something down. So there's got to be like a receipt, you know. They had receipts back then, you know. There's got to be like a, just some sort of conversation between these dudes, you know. Other than just, yo, make me a stained glass window. Does it? Bam. No, they don't talk ever again. No, come on. No, th did it really go down like that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh. In the dining room, the windows are curved to complement the veranda, which is on the east side. Uh, if you go and see the mansion uh, on the east side, you can see the big veranda there. And now I know that those curved windows um, are lead into the dining room, which I didn't know before. So that's a little bit about the house itself. Now I'm going to tell you about Frank, but not George W. Frank. I'm going to talk to you about Dr. Augustus Frank first. Dr. Augustus Frank was born January 12, 1792. Frank was born in Germany, but immigrated to the U.S. when he was seven. He trained to be a doctor at a medical college in Dorset, Vermont, and volunteered in the War of 1812. In 1814, Frank began to practice medicine in Victor, New York. He was an abolitionist and a conductor on the Underground Railroad. Frank belonged to the Anti-Slavery Society of New York and the American Anti-Slavery Society. So, uh, this guy's cool. He's cooler than you. He's cooler than me. He's got designer shades that hide his face, and he wears them around like he's cooler than me, which he is, all right? He immigrated to the U.S. when he was seven from Germany, trained to be a doctor then in the U.S. Uh, in Vermont, volunteered to be in the War of 1812, then practiced medicine after that. Then he became an abolitionist, an actual conductor on the Underground Railroad, and then was a member of multiple anti-slavery societies. Way cooler, way cooler than you, way cooler than me. Frank built three houses for himself and family. This, this is not Dr. Augustus Frank, let me preface. That was, that was Dr. Augustus Frank. This is George Washington Frank. That's right, his name was George Washington. George Washington built three houses for himself and his family. The first house, completed in June of 1869, was built in Warsaw, New York. George Frank built his second house in Corning, Iowa. The second house was nicknamed Edgewood. Um, George Frank, I think he had a real estate investment firm. That's what it was um, in Corning, Iowa, because nobody would build a house in Iowa. Iowa kind of sucks, um, but that's why he did, because he had a real estate investment firm there. It just kind of got there, and so he was like, well, I kind of need a house there, so... But he actually didn't use it as a house. Um, it would actually end up becoming a clubhouse for a local golf course. <laughs> I mean, sure. Um, but eventually it caught fire and was completely destroyed. So quite an adventure that house went on. Um, but his Warsaw, New York home actually still exists as a private residence. In 1871, he purchased a thousand, just over a 1,000 acres of land from the Union Pacific Railroad in Kearney, Nebraska. He helped establish the Phil Carney Ranch, where he invested in thoroughbred horses. In 1885, he opened the George W. Frank Improvement Company, and in 1886, began construction on a home in Kearney. On August 1st of 1885, Frank, brought, Frank bought the controlling interest in the Kearney Canal in the Water Supply Company, 
Frank continued the construction of the Kearney Canal and started planning for a power plant in 1885. In July of 1890, George Frank owned a company that started using electric trolleys, which were run by Kearney Street Railway. So that's a little bit about um, George W. Frank and the and why he built a house in the places where he did build the houses, um, and eventually Kearney, Nebraska. He's he's a little bit of a different man than his father was, um, in the in the sense that he's a more of a businessman. Uh, he's a businessman, not more of a businessman. He is a businessman uh, where his doctor or where his dad, excuse me, is a doctor. Um, but they are very similar in that they're both really cool. Um, where where his dad helped people, you know, with his profession and stuff like that, and the abolition and stuff. Um, George W. Frank just elevated Carney um, with his entrepreneurship. Um, he had an improvement company literally under his name. Um, he had interest in the Carney Canal water water supply. He started plans for a power plant. He owned a, he um, owned a company that used electric trolleys on the Carney Street Railway. So really cool, doing really cool things for the city of Carney, growing the city of Carney from his hands. So also a guy who is cooler than you and cooler than me, and he also wears designer shades to hide his face. All right? He, he, he's earned the right. He and his dad, two, two really cool people uh, doing really cool things. Um, however, some not-so-cool things would happen to George W. Frank. Um, as a result of overextension in business affairs and the economic downturn caused by the, the panic of 1893, Frank lost many of his businesses and was forced into foreclosure. By this point, he had signed the house over to his wife for $1 as a way to elude the mortgage broker and keep the home. So even when some not-so-cool things were happening, he was eluding the mortgage broker uh, by signing over the house to his wife for $1. So he was still being a badass, even not-so-badass things were happening to him. That's just sick. Uh, but uh, karma would get even with him uh, because by 1900, Phoebe... Phoebe had died to a sudden heart failure, and Frank was forced to leave the house to the bank and his possessions up for auction. Um, he had moved in with his daughter in Lincoln, Nebraska, and then uh, he died in his sleep at his daughter's home in 1906. So that's a little bit uh, just about how Frank, uh, how Frank, kind of kind of his downfall, I guess you could say, uh, just just kind of the end of his life. Very peaceful. Um, uh, how the Frank house used nowadays, however. Um, it's, it's a, it's a historic center for Kearney, Nebraska centennial celebration. Uh, that's how it was originally, uh, originally utilized. That was its first utilization in 1973, I believe it was Nebraska centennial celebration and the house was used as a historic center for that. So that's, that was its first inst instance when it was utilized as a museum, um, an estimated 2000 people toured the house during this event. 1973 happened to be the same year that it was uh, placed on the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, in 1976, the Frank House officially opened a museum after the various areas of the house were partially restored and furniture was collected to fill the empty rooms. Tours were originally only held on the main floor, and visitors would get to travel to the top of the staircase to view the large stained glass window as the curators lived on the second floor of the home. Today, the house not only functions as a museum, but also as a university and community events center. Various events are held at the house, one of the largest being the Chancellor of the University's Holiday Reception. The Frank House also has various exhibits presented by community members or exhibits presented by the Frank House. So there you go. 
that is the George W. Frank House, the George Washington Frank House. Um, if that piqued your interest, you know, go research about it, go visit it. You know, I th- I will certainly be doing that. You know, I'm gonna visit the other two places, so I figure let's visit this place too eventually. Um, but that's it: the Archway Monument, the Mona, the Museum of uh, Nebraska Arts, and the uh, the George the George W. Frank House or the George W. Frank Museum. Um, those are the three exhibits that I think are really cool and that I will probably visit, be visiting here in Carton. Uh, now to note a couple of cool people. We just talked about cool people. We just talked about two cool people. But now uh, we're going to talk about uh, a, cu- a couple of cool, more modern cool people. Um, these people will be considered cool to me. I think they're pretty cool. I think you'll think they're pretty cool, which is why I want to share their coolness with you. So the first person that we're thinking is cool together, collectively, is Drew Anderson. Might know him, might not. I'll try and refresh your memory. He is a former MLB baseball outfielder. He played with the Milwaukee Brewers in 2006 and the minor leagues from 2003 to 2010. In late 2010, he was hired by the Brewers as a scout in the Midwestern United States. So a little bit more about Drew here. He attended Kearney High School, so he's from Kearney. He's one of the state's top multi-state performers in Kearney High, earning first-team All-Nebraska honors for football, track, and baseball. He played American Legion ball, batting 443 as a junior with 41 extra base hits and 75 RBIs en route to earning All-State tournament honors. In football, he was one of the state's top receivers, earning first-team All-Nebraska honors from the Omaha World Herald and Lincoln Journal Star in 1999 after hauling in 38 passes for 818 yards and 9 touchdowns. On the track, he won the all-class gold medal in both a 110 and 330-meter hurdles, helping the Bearcats win four consecutive state titles. After his high school days, he went to the University of Nebraska to just play baseball. He appeared 27 games in his freshman year, and batted 293 with nine stolen bases in a minor role for the College World Series-bound Huskers. As a sophomore, he went 266, a little bit worse, but that's with more games, and uh, 32 RBIs in those 63 games, including nine multi-hit games. He batted just 077 in 13 postseason at-bats, but against Clemson in the, uh, in the College World Series, he drew a pair of walks and scored a run in Nebraska's almost upset of the Tigers. Uh, they almost beat him that game, but not quite. Uh, in his junior year, a little bit, a little bit worse. So he kind of got worse as he went on. Um, just batted 238 with 19 RBIs in 57 games. So not really sure what happened from freshman, sophomore, junior years. No, not really sure what was going on, but just kind of tended to get worse uh, as his college career went on. But he would still enter the MLB draft in 2003. And he thought his junior year was good enough. He was selected by the Brewers, 699th overall pick. And with that, he was like, drive to the 699th? I don't want to play my senior year. That means I'm good. You know what? You might be sitting there. I, I was originally like, 699th? That guy sucks. That guy sucks. 699th? He got drafted 699th? Are you kidding me? That's terrible. And you know what? He had nine plate appearances um, in the major leagues. Uh, all for the Milwaukee Brewers in 2006. So that's probably two or three, two or three games, um, depending on sack flies, uh, walks, stuff like that. Um, in those plate appearances, four strikeouts, one walk, one hit. 
He, he just he wasn't that he wasn't that great of a baseball player, guys. But you know what? Here's here's something to think about. Yeah, he sucked. He wasn't a good baseball player. But guess what? He has one hit. You know who that's more than? That's one hit. That's one more hit than I have. That's one more hit than you have. You know what that means? He's better than me. And he's better than you. He's just better than us. He's the one with the baseball reference page. He's got his own page on baseball reference. You know what it says on there? One hit. It says it on there. You can go look at it. Go to baseballreference.com. Search Drew Anderson. He's got one hit. And that's more than me. And it's more than So he's better than us. He's better than us. You might sit there and say he sucks. He's better than you. Sorry to break it to you. But that's Drew Anderson. I just thought he was really cool. Uh, whole, whole baseball career. Um, and his high school accolades, specifically in Kearney, doing great things uh, in, fo- in baseball, football, and track. Um, just doing just doing amazing things uh, in the city of Kearney. And going on to do better than me and you in baseball. Second person I'm going to talk about is Tim Schlattman. Might sound familiar to some of you, to some of you show and movie people. Uh, not really me. This this guy's not really my my thing, but I just thought some people might know him out there. Um, he's a three-time uh, Emmy Award nominee. Uh, he's Nebraska-born and raised, and college professors' writing credits include ABC's number one hit, Roseanne, Fox's Grit Real, the WB's Smallville, the Extreme Close-Up, and most recently, critically acclaimed, for Showtime, Dexter. That's the one that I know. I'm sure that's the one that other people. I know a couple. I know a couple of people that watch Dexter. Uh, I don't know. I'm not familiar with any of the other things I just listed. Um, but Dexter's the one I know, so it's probably the one you know. Um, in 2007, he garnered two Writers Guild of America Award nominations: one for Best Dramatic Series and an individual nod for his episode of Dexter entitled "The Dark Defender." That same year, Dexter was also nominated for an Emmy and Golden Globe in the Best Dramatic Series category and received the prestigious Peabody Award. The following year, the Dexter writing staff was once again nominated in the Best Dramatic Series category by the Writers Guild of America, and the show was again nominated for an Emmy for Best Dramatic Series, earning Tim his first Emmy nomination as a producer. 2009 and 2010 brought Tim and the Dexter writing staff Writers Guild of America Emmy and Golden Globe nominations once again. In 2011, saw another Emmy nomination for Dexter in the Best Dramatic Series category. As an executive producer since 2012, Tim Schlattman recently completed the eighth and final season of Dexter. So there's Tim Slapman, lots of Emmy stuff, you know, lots, lots of cool stuff, Golden Globe, all that. Not really privy to all that information, but all that sounds really, uh, sounds like he did a lot of things, sounds like he was really cool, and guess what? He's from Kearney, Nebraska. So uh, I thought, I thought some people would like to hear about him, um, but specifically, I would like to talk about a certain part of Dexter, um, season six, episode seven, titled Nebraska, and set. In Carney, that's right, and that's largely because Tim Schlattman is the co-executive producer. I, I am, fu- I, I fully believe that if Tim Schlattman is not the co-executive producer, there's never going to be an episode titled Nebraska, and certainly not one shot uh, in Carney, in Carney, Nebraska. No sir, uh, but just because he was a Carney High School guy, you know, or Carney resident, Carney High School graduate. Um, I think that's probably why it was filmed. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the episode here, just just for those who are interested. 
Um, Witness Protection has relocated the Trinity killer's surviving family to Kearney, where a copycat killer appears to have murdered Trinity's widow and daughter. So Dexter travels to Kearney to avenge the killings. Numerous elements in the episode underscore Carney's rural setting and culture, some sinister, and farm-specific settings and implements add variety to Dexter's methods of killing and corpse disposal. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Dexter's like kind of like a... He's like an anti-hero. He kills people that kill people. Um, but he's not like Batman. He's not like heroic about it. He's like... Uh, he's cuts... he the, the people that kill people, they just like... He doesn't like just like shoot him in the head or just like beat him up or something he like and then leave him there he like tortures them and then like chops him up like he's yeah lots of terrible things uh he's not void of you know yeah he's not he's not batman he's just not uh but there you go that is a little bit about dexter that's tim schlatman that's tim schlatman that's drew anderson those are two people they're two people that grew up in carney that's who they are that's who they are I thought that was really cool. I thought they were two really cool people doing really cool things, and I wanted to sh- and I wanted to tell you guys about them. But that's gonna be it for this episode of the C String Podcast. Thank you so guys so much for listening. Um, I will visit these places. I think I think I you know as I've been talking about it, I've been convincing myself more and more. Um, I will visit those museums and attractions, and then I will probably get back um, on on the mic and tell you guys about what I learned, the experiences, you know, different things, stuff like that, and maybe even convince more of you guys to go and visit these places. So once again, uh, thank you everybody for watching this episode of the C-Stream Podcast. I will see you guys next time uh, where we will probably be doing another episode of Classic Rock Talk. Get excited for that. But I will see you guys next time. Thank you and bye-bye.